Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed civic participant, activist, and believer. In this episode, I talk about the announcement and significance of Kamala Harris as the Democratic vice presidential nominee, the attempts to hamper the vote by tampering with the United States Postal Service, and I reflect on some personal changes since the killing of Mike Brown on August 9th, 2014. But first, my favorite part of the podcast, because I get to hear directly from you, it's the reviews. We're at 340 reviews, which is up from 298 last episode. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to write a thoughtful review. If you haven't yet, it's not too late. But let me get to one of the latest reviews. This comes from Christy C., And she says it's a must-listen for all Christians in her five-star review. She says, regardless of your political stance, I would highly recommend this podcast to any believer. Jamar opens up thoughtful, loving dialogue about issues plaguing our black brothers and sisters, including other minorities in the conversation as well. We as Christians need to be more actively involved in politics and not be silent. Our stance as believers matters in order to be a light to the world. Jamar is a remarkable, bold leader in this space, so thankful for his perspective and for educating us. As an Asian American Christian, I often find we are passive in the fight for social justice, but here to make a change and fight for racial reconciliation. Thank you so much, Christy, for that very thoughtful review. I mean, I'll be honest, I am trying to strike a tone where I speak forthrightly, boldly, and truthfully about current events and the things that I am convicted about. But to do so in a way that I hope doesn't berate people, doesn't um, unnecessarily uh, push people away, even though I know we'll have differences of opinion. And, and to be quite honest, I think there are other similar shows addressing current events, politics, and what have you by Christians that just don't strike that tone. And I, I hope this is the kind of podcast and commentary that is a little bit different and uh, somewhat refreshing. So thank you again. I read all those reviews, all 340 so far. I would love to read yours. So go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts and please leave a review. Another announcement, really an explanation. I have to say I am so sorry for this long hiatus from footnotes, really an unannounced and unofficial hiatus. Uh, It's been a while since I've done footnotes and uh, a while since I've done it regularly. But in that time, I have been productive. I turned in final edits for my second book, which is called How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. It is a book that in many ways picks up where my first book, The Color of Compromise, left off. If you remember, the final chapter in the first book was called the fierce urgency of now. And it was talking about all kinds of practical ways that we could work toward racial justice. But I really wasn't satisfied with a single chapter. I wanted much, much more. And as I surveyed the landscape of books out there about racial justice, there weren't that many that take the practical aspect as the whole point and devote an entire book to it. So that's what How to Fight Racism is. You need not have read The Color of Compromise, in order to read How to Fight Racism, they do go together really well. And I'll tell you, lots of people ask how they can help support me as an author. Well, there are a few ways. Number one, it is available for pre-order already 
on Amazon. You can check the show notes of this episode for a link to pre-order the book. And I'll just talk a little insider publishing info. Pre-order sales are crucial. Those are the numbers and the stats that folks look at for like watch lists and even the New York Times bestseller list. Wouldn't it be awesome to have another book on the New York Times bestseller list and hopefully it doesn't take another murder of a black person to bring attention to these things. So that's a proactive way you can do uh, support uh, this book and the cause of racial justice more generally. Also, you can plan now for a book study group. So the book should, God willing, come out January 5th, 2021. And so for the spring semester or even a short winter study, uh, this would be a great book. So you can think about and plan ahead for a group study at your church or just with friends or, or whatever group you're a part of. And then lastly, you can be part of the book launch team. We are not officially unrolling that yet, but you will hear more in the near future. But I just wanted to plug that so you can keep it in the back of your mind. So that's one of the things that I've been doing while I have not been recording footnotes. Uh, by the way, Bo has been very consistent and persistent in trying to get me to do this more regularly. So you can thank him that it's happening at all. But um, also wanted to say that look, I've been stressed. I don't know about y'all. I'm just going to be honest. I've been very stressed because, I mean, ever since the beginning of March, we've been in this pandemic and social distancing and not traveling. And we had an entire summer where that was the reality, a summer where there would at least be a week or two when we could unwind, travel, get away from our regular routine and recharge a little bit. But not only did we not have that opportunity, on top of it, we had this massive wave of racial justice protests and uprisings, a wave that is much needed and has brought some much needed conversations back to the national scene, as well as some changes uh, that have been occurring. But for someone like me who does racial justice work pretty much for a living, it has been an overwhelmingly busy season, but also an extremely stressful and draining one. So I've tried to be a lot more intentional about self-care, um, to slow down, to to practice mindfulness and pay attention to my physical body and all of that stuff. But that's meant I haven't been very productive. And I hope we can extend each other grace in all of this. Like productivity is not the end all be all. Uh, we are fully embodied human beings, mind, body, and soul. And we are in very chaotic times, times that we're still not used to, and I don't know if we'll ever be used to it. But uh, anyway, I say all that as an explanation and an apology, not an excuse. I'm going to do better starting now. So let's get to the news. Start spreading the news. The Dems have a VP. And it's a biracial black lady. Okay, <laughs> enough of that. Uh, my singing is premium content. You have to pay extra if you want to hear me sing any more than that. But 
the first bit of news for us this episode is that the Biden campaign chooses Kamala Harris for the vice presidential nominee. Last week, the Biden campaign announced Kamala Harris as their pick for VP, a move that will be confirmed this week at the virtual Democratic National Convention. This this decision ends months of excited speculation because earlier in his campaign, Biden said, and I quote, I commit that I will in fact pick a woman to be vice president. Now that was back in March during a presidential debate and conjectures about who that woman might be have swirled since then. Among figures such as Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Stacey Abrams, and more, Kamala Harris has always been in the running and close to the top of considerations. So what was my reaction when I heard the news that Kamala Harris had been chosen for VP. My first reaction was relief. I mean, this election coming up is critically important. Every presidential election is important. Yes, I know. But we need to get this man out of the White House, which means the Democrats have to do a very good job on their part of selecting nominees and running a campaign. So I was nervous that they would pick someone who wouldn't excite voters, who was relative unknown, all of that stuff. And so my first reaction was relief, because if you want to talk about qualifications for this office, I think she checks a lot of boxes. Number one, and and which was really important to me, she's been vetted at a national level. So she has won statewide office in the most populous state. She has uh, been a candidate for the uh, Democratic presidential nomination. And so she has already under, undergone a level of scrutiny that is very rare for anyone. And when you have a vice presidential candidate. You don't want someone who's brand new and who we're going to be finding stuff out about on the campaign trail. So I feel like we know a lot of Harris's record, what some people would consider skeletons in her closet or anything like that, that she's already been through that. So that was one thing. Um, I mentioned before, she won statewide office in the most populous state, which means a couple of things. One, she knows how to run a campaign. Two, she knows how to fundraise. Three, she's had state level experience, but not just that. She was attorney general in, in, in California. And then she is a, a senator in uh, uh, in the U.S. Senate. So she has experience at the federal level, too. And that's all vital for one of the qualifications that Biden said was paramount, which is ready on day one, that his vice president would be ready on day one to lead and to govern as vice president and potentially as president. And so uh, another thing, about Harris, a box that she checks is name recognition. And not just that, uh, uh, the potential to animate some voters. Uh, I, I think it's really important that that there's someone on the ticket that people are excited about, that, that they're interested in. I think Kamala Harris is one of those people. And she's also incredibly intelligent, very sharp, very capable, as we saw in the Senate confirmation, in in some confirmation hearings and committee hearings that were televised. We saw her incisive questioning. She has the potential to be a true partner to Joe Biden as president and not just a figurehead and the potential to be the first woman and first woman of color to be president of the United States. So 
very impressive overall candidate. I think Tyler Burns sent out a tweet that kind of summarizes it for for everyone. He says, my thoughts and prayers are, are with Mike Pence in this time of difficulty. Of course, he's alluding to the fact that Pence might have to debate Kamala Harris one-on-one, and I would not want to be in Pence's shoes. But another reaction that I had to the announcement of Harris as VP was trepidation. And I saw this on social media as well. So even as we celebrate this uh, biracial woman of Jamaican and Indian descent, even as we celebrate the fact that a woman is on a major party ticket, we're also bracing ourselves. For every black victory, we have to brace for backlash or white lash, as it were. In this case, we are bracing for the racism, the sexism, the misogynoir that Kamala Harris will undoubtedly and honestly has already faced, uh, even in just the short time that she's been announced as the VP pick. And so it's, it's one of those realities when you're living in a white supremacist society and there's any sort of advancement for a black person, uh, uh, an indigenous person, any other people of color – It always comes with this sort of reflexive uh, mental wincing at the prospect of the, the blows and the backlash that will come of it. So that was another reaction. Uh, The other thing is it was interesting that there was a mixed reception on the part of Democrats. And really, the divide was sort of over moderates and progressives, which we've seen play out uh, throughout this entire election season as we were looking at the uh, the the selection and uh, in, in figuring out who would actually be the Democratic pick for president. So we saw that play out in the primaries is what I'm saying. And it's also present now with this VP pick. So some folks don't think Kamala is as progressive as they would have liked, which follows along with Joe Biden. He's uh, a much more moderate Democrat uh, compared to some, such as Joe, uh, such as uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren. Also, with Harris, her record as a prosecutor has been a constant source of criticism. And now, even more so, it's going to be under the microscope in the wake of George Floyd's murder and these protests against anti-black police brutality and more broadly just this idea of the criminal justice system in general. So Harris in her role as a prosecutor and attorney general, she represented the system. She represented this flawed and, and broken criminal justice system and that will continue to be a topic of conversation. And so some progressives are saying they won't vote for her that uh, she is too far from their ideals and their preferences, and so they'll vote third party or won't vote at all or do write-in, something like that. But I think my impression is that many more people are taking a pragmatic stance that Kamala Harris is who they've got, and they're going to work to get Trump out of office as the very first and most important priority. And then when a Democratic administration is in office – with Biden and Harris in this case, they're going to push their policy positions once in office. But they're saying, now is the time to vote. I want to touch on one more aspect of Kamala Harris's uh, 
importance or significance as the vice presidential pick for the Democrats. And it has to do, of course, with race. So I mentioned earlier, she is biracial. Her father is Jamaican and her mother is Indian from India. And so this is an interesting moment when both black people and Indian people, or more broadly, uh, people of Asian descent, can claim representation with the vice presidential pick. It is a truly modern and U.S. story of an interracial woman rising to the vice presidential candidacy of the Democratic Party. In some ways, it echoes Barack Obama's story, who said many times that only in America was a story like his possible, where he comes from a biracial background, uh, a Kenyan father and a white mother, worked his way up through Harvard and law school and state senate and then uh, U.S. Senate and then to the presidency as the first black president, right? But there's also some interesting nuances here with Kamala Harris. So if elected, she'll be both the first woman. She'll be she'll be a lot of firsts. She'll be the first woman. She'll be the first black woman and the first uh, person of Asian descent in that role. So so a lot of celebrations going on, which is great. Every group that's represented in her embodied self and her racial and ethnic heritage has cause to celebrate. Uh, but in a typical in, in a society that that typically thinks about race along this black-white binary, it is a risk that her Indian and South Asian heritage may be downplayed, ignored, or erased. And so we we need to flag that. We need to understand that this is a celebration not just for black people, but for black and brown people, for all people of color, for women. So it's just a, a, a marvelously important symbolic victory. We don't know what her policies are going to be, but but her presence in that role is really important. But I think we can speak to Kamala's blackness because in some important ways, she has embraced not only her black ancestry, but black culture and black experience as well. So that's what I want to focus on for just a couple of moments, particularly the fact that she went to an HBCU. For my listeners who aren't familiar, that stands for Historically Black College or University. So she went to Howard in Washington, D.C. for undergrad. And that, I think, is really significant for several reasons. So most people who aspire to national office, they think about it and plan for it even from high school on, certainly in college, right? And they sort of chart their path to national prominence with that in mind, including where they go to college. And so many people who are aspiring, even for state office, would go to a PWI, which stands for Predominantly White Institution. Uh, They would go to a PWI college or university, especially an Ivy League, where the pedigree of that degree goes a long way, and having that on your resume opens up a lot of doors. But it was risky for her to attend an HBCU, which in our society, even though it's vastly and vitally important in the black community and thereby uh, to the U.S. community as a whole, it's been undervalued by so many in society, undervalued 
as uh, 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 an institution that you put on your resume. And it makes, you know, getting into grad school or law school afterwards trickier in, in some cases because of the, the uh, terrible misconceptions and the undervaluing of our HBCUs. So she goes to an HBCU. She immediately gets involved in activism there. She was involved in protesting apartheid in South Africa and other causes. She also joined a sorority, the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, which is the oldest black sorority. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm not in a black fraternity. I went to Notre Dame. They didn't have the Greek system there. But I've always been interested in the Divine Nine and in joining potentially a black fraternity Everyone says I would be Alpha Phi Alpha. So I don't know if any Alphas are listening. I'd love to find out more of what y'all are about. Alphas, uh, the fraternity is the oldest uh, intercollegiate black Greek fraternity. And uh, anyway, that's a sidebar. So she's she's part of the Alpha Kappa Alphas, which are going to go hard for her. They're, go, they're going to be a huge source of support for her. And uh, I think historically, probably in her biography, a very important source of learning about Black culture, being immersed in it, accepted within it, and, and being able to communicate with other Black people. So I just think it's significant that she would invest her time and talent at a Black institution, especially when she could have made other moves that would have been more predictable and more traditional for her. Now we see someone who went to an HBCU, loved her experience there, got involved, went on to do great things, and she is currently running for the second highest political office in the land to make even more history. The United States Postal Service and voter suppression. Those are not words that I am eager to utter in 2020. So something's going on, folks. Something's going on with the Postal Service, this reliable, popular staple of the federal government. There is a new postmaster general, Postmaster Louis DeJoy, who took over in May. Something you should know about DeJoy is that he is a Trump supporter and a major donor and fundraiser to the GOP. He has decided to implement, quote, organizational realignment. Ostensibly, it's to streamline the Postal Service in light of $9 billion losses last year. But we should also note that the Postal Service is not a business. It's not a corporation. And so if it's in financial trouble, while better management and efficiency are part of the solution, so is budgeting. They could create a budget that helps alleviate that financial shortfall. The uh, U.S. Postal Service is governed by something called the Board of Generals. It oversees the post office, including selecting the postmaster general, and is comprised of nine people. All but one of them are Republican, and the significance of that is going to come a little bit later in this segment. But the impact of this organizational realignment is broad and vast. First of all, uh, the, the postmaster general has reduced overtime hours, 
for postal workers, which slows down mail delivery and further burdens already overworked postal workers. Another impact is that it delays critical mailings, right? So it's not just that mail in general is delayed. Critical mail, such as prescription medicine, is getting delayed. And so now we have people with health issues not getting their medicine quickly enough or on time and facing health risks. Another consequence that many people are not talking about, but we need to constantly bear in mind, is the impact and the importance of mail uh, for incarcerated people. So for many people who are incarcerated in our nation's jails and prisons, their main source of contact with family members, friends, and the outside world is through the mail. A lot of incarcerated people look forward almost daily to getting mail from spouses, children, friends, other loved ones. It's what keeps them going. It's what gets some of them up in the morning. And these delays in the mail, this disruption in the postal service, is having a massive effect on our nation's overly large population of incarcerated women and men. And so let's not forget the folks who are locked behind bars and behind barbed wire and that their only connection sometimes to the outside world is that mail that they get. Other impacts include eliminating high-speed sorting machines, and they've even removed collection boxes, which is the fancy name for the mailbox, these big blue barrel kind of boxes, right? We've seen pictures of them being stacked on trucks and collected in states such as California, New York, and Pennsylvania. Now, this is a supposedly routine move, but the timing is suspect. And let's talk about the timing. The timing of these changes has many people, including me, very worried. First, we're in a pandemic. Mail is more vital than ever Many of us are doing shopping online, getting groceries delivered. We're having to do things through the mail at a higher rate and volume than before because going out physically to places is much riskier in light of the virus. Second, these changes come just a few months before a presidential election. Now, presidential elections are always important, but this year, the mail plays an even more crucial crucial role because it's likely that these pandemic conditions will persist through the beginning of November and the election, which means that guidelines about social distancing and avoiding crowds will still apply. And so we're faced with the prospect of spending hours in line, waiting with dozens or even hundreds of people who are all in close proximity in order to vote. And this is happening at a time when many politicians are advocating for increased access to mail-in voting, for precisely the reason that I just stated, that, that, that many people are not going to feel safe going out and waiting in long lines in the midst of a pandemic. So let's have mail-in voting and let's have greater access to it. So any tampering with the U.S. Postal Service at this stage in the game, coming this close to an election where mail-in voting is so important, is going to cause a lot of confusion and sow the seeds of doubt. It's going to make it more difficult for people to vote. And all of this smacks of voter suppression. Don't believe me? Well, 
Listen to the current president. So when discussing a multi-billion dollar economic relief package for the Postal Service, Trump said, quote, they need that money in order to make the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. If we don't make a deal, that means they don't get the money. That means they can't have universal mail-in voting. They just can't have it. Now, you don't have to read too closely between the lines there to to hear the deeper message. A lot of people were outraged at that comment because it's basically the president saying, hey, if I decide to veto a bill or if Republicans stall uh, this funding in Congress, then guess what? They will the U.S. Postal Service will not have the money it needs to have the infrastructure and the workers necessary for millions of mail in ballots during the presidential election, which benefits Trump because it means fewer people come out to vote. It means that many Democrats who are disproportionately represented uh, among the poor and black and brown folks, it means it's harder for them to vote, which which benefits the president. So a lot of people were enraged at that because it sounded like the president was all too willing to hold up vital funds in order to help his election chances. And Trump has claimed, quote, without evidence, and that's newspeak for he's speaking falsely or just flat out lying. He has claimed without evidence that mail-in voting would result in widespread voter fraud. Never mind the fact that he himself votes by mail on an absentee ballot. So if it's good enough for the president, why not us? The Washington Post reports that since March, the president has made more than 80 statements that attack the integrity of the election. And it's not just him. There's more voter suppression. Republicans right now are spending tens of millions of dollars in lawsuits and advertising to block the expansion of mail-in voting in various states. They're also training 35,000 vote watchers, up to 35,000. And these folks are supposedly supposed to monitor polling stations on election day and, and prevent voter fraud or something like that. But many of us are just view this as voter intimidation, that they're going to be the presence of Republicans. Who knows? We've seen armed militiamen out there with assault rifles and pistols and exercising their Second Amendment rights? What if those folks show up at voting stations? It's not a good recipe, folks. So what does this mean? We need to be prepared not to know the results of the election on election night. I remember distinctly in 2016, on the night of the presidential election, I stayed up till after midnight to see the final call, and it came. And so it was uh, late night slash early morning, but I went to bed knowing who the next president would be. The election had been called. But this year, we need to be prepared to wait days, even weeks for final results. If we remember some of the uh, Democratic caucuses in states, uh, there was some confusion over electronic voting and whatnot and a lack of poll workers. And it took days, even weeks 
to get the final results in some of those early caucus sites. We need to be prepared for the same thing to happen with the national election. Now, that's important because that means every day, every hour, every week that we don't have official results, that is time to sow the seeds of doubt. Every moment that these results are caught up in lawsuits or recounts or other ways that that people are calling the results into question is a way of undermining confidence in the vote. And so we should also be prepared for Trump not to leave the White House. He may claim, again, without evidence, that the election results are invalid. He may declare the election too corrupt to be definitive and could do anything from there. He could call for another vote. He could say it's not a a valid election and just stay in office. He could overstay. We don't know. So we just need to be prepared that this will not be a seamless transition or a transition like others we've seen in the past. So what can you do? I mean, there's a lot we can do. One, you can volunteer to be a poll worker. So a lot of people who volunteer at the polls on election day are older folks, and they may not want to get out and do this during a pandemic. So younger folks, we need to get out there and volunteer and make sure that we the polls are, are well staffed so that the wait isn't too long and more people can vote. Also, and this should go without saying by now, but vote and vote early if you can vote in person if you have to be careful. But vote. The only way to mitigate the the disinformation campaign that is happening right now, which is for the purpose of undermining confidence in the election, is to turn out in such huge numbers that the results are undeniable. We need to get out there and we we need to get out there in, in vast numbers so that no matter what folks try to pull And how they say, well, you know, it could be off by this many votes or that many votes. It's overwhelming. Can't be doubted. Because this voter suppression tactic is devilishly effective. You don't actually have to prevent an election from taking place, a vote from taking place. All you have to do is plant the seed of doubt that the election is not valid. That's all they have to do. So vote. The only way to, to, to overcome that, I mean, leading up to the election, we fight like heck to make sure we protect the vote. But, but, but when it comes to actually voting, we need to get out in massive numbers. So vote. And not just you. Get other people to vote as well. We need this man out of office. And the election is the legal and traditional way that we change leaders in this country. Your vote helps bring change. So now on to the unfortunately named segment of our show called Tiz Bits. Like tidbits, get it? Yeah, whatever. So uh, this one's pretty somber. Um, as I record this, we're less than 10 days past August 9th. And do you remember what happened on August 9th, 2014? Mike Brown, a black teenager in Ferguson, Missouri, was gunned down by a white police officer. 
Now, reports from the Department of Justice later showed that Brown had gotten into a physical altercation with the officer and, in all likelihood, did not have his hands up when he was shot. You remember that that gesture birthed the chant, hands up, don't shoot. But we should also remember that there were not one but two Department of Justice reports, one on the incident and another on the department itself in Ferguson, which showed a long-standing and egregious pattern of targeting black people as a means of revenue from the tickets they issued and for harassment and intimidation. So I mention this anniversary because for me and for many in my generation, it was our Emmett Till moment. You remember in 1955, Emmett Till, 14-year-old black teenager, lynched by white men for crossing the uh, imaginary, invisible, but very lethal lines of Jim Crow. And that was an incident that in the 50s catalyzed a lot of black people, and especially young black people, to get them involved in the civil rights movement. Well, for my generation... Mike Brown's killing was that kind of Emmett Till moment. Now, it's hard to pinpoint one moment, unfortunately, because there have been so many, uh, namely the murder of Trayvon Martin as well. But certainly with Mike Brown's murder, the Black Lives Matter movement came roaring to the national forefront and became a, a phrase on the lips of millions of people. And for months, we saw protesters in Ferguson staring down a militarized police force chanting Black Lives Matter. And for me, it was this moment of great clarity, especially as it came to race and the church. So in the midst of this Black Lives Matter movement, white Christians showed their whole selves. I mean, I knew who they had been historically. I knew who they were institutionally, but now I knew who they were experientially and personally. I mean, there's a lot I can get into here. Let me just say that Mike Brown's killing is one of the factors that directly led me to the study of U.S. history, because I was trying to figure out Ferguson. I was trying to figure out uh, what was happening there in, in the Black Lives Matter movement and asking questions like, how do you get a predominantly white police force that is charged to protect and serve a predominantly black community? How do tensions and distrust run so high? Where does that come from? And so as I was looking into answers, I found that historians often had the most helpful things to say. They could talk about redlining and restrictive covenants in the, the growth of residential segregation. They could talk about the origins of the police force, their relation to slave patrols and the policing of black bodies. All of that is context to help us understand what's going on in the 21st century. So it was crucial to leading me to the study of history, but it was also crucial in helping me to reevaluate and, as they say, decolonize my faith. Because I started to realize more than ever that the faith that I had learned, the Christian traditions that I had been surrounded by, had imported 
white supremacy and racism within their very theology and practice. And so I had to come to grips with that. And it's one of the things that led us to change the name to The Witness, a black Christian collective, where we were less timid and more forthright about embracing our full embodied selves as black people and having this organization as an unabashedly, unapologetically pro-black dignity organization. We finally came to grips that hate is going to hate. White supremacists are going to white supremacists. Racists are going to racist. They're always going to call us names. They're always going to question our theology. They're always going to question our legitimacy in their spaces, quote unquote. So we said, fine. Thank you for showing us who you truly are. We're going to go follow Jesus. We're going to follow the path of liberation, especially for our brothers and sisters of African descent. And so I wrote a tweet on the anniversary of Mike Brown's killing, and I think it summarizes my thoughts. It said this, Mike Brown's killing and the protests it sparked made undeniable what I shuddered to admit. Black people's lives matter very little to some, including Christians. I'm grateful, though. The truth will set you free. Be free, my brothers and sisters. Be free. That's it for this week. Remember to support The Witness Foundation. Visit thewitnessfoundation.co and help us raise money for black Christian leaders to do what they do best. Also, like my author page on Facebook. Go to facebook.com forward slash jamartisby1. That's facebook.com forward slash jamartisby and the number one. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, both at jamartisby. Remember, you can contact me via email at footnotespod and the number one at gmail, footnotespod1 at gmail.com. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, and our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. Footnotes.